This podcast is sponsored by Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. Listen for more at the conclusion of today's program. Welcome to Mortification of Spin, a casual conversation about things that count with Carl Truman and Todd Pruitt. Mortification of Spin is a weekly podcast from the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. Let's join this week's conversation. Well, welcome to Mortification of Spin, the regular podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. My name is Carl Truman, Professor of Biblical and Religious Studies at Grove City College in beautiful Western Pennsylvania. Uh, regular listeners will know that I'm usually here with my friend and co-host, the Reverend Todd Pruitt, uh, pastor of Harrisonburg, a pastor of Covenant Presbyterian Church in Harrisonburg, Virginia. Uh, Todd is not able to be with us today. He's off pursuing his lucrative solo career as a megachurch pastor. And so I will be flying solo, but not quite solo, because it's a great privilege and personal pleasure to have a special guest on the show today. My guest will be known to some of you. Uh, he's actually known to my wife as that man with the beautiful daughters. My wife is not on Twitter, but she trolls other people on Twitter. And this is one of the men that she uh, keeps her eyes on uh, hawkishly. His name is Andrew T. Walker. He's the Associate Professor of Christian Ethics and Apologetics, the Associate Dean of the School of Theology, and the Director of the Carl F.H. Henry Institute for Evangelical Engagement at Southern Baptist Seminary. Almost as many titles as Ligon Duncan, I have to say there, Andrew, as I'm reading those out. Uh, he was previously uh, a senior fellow at the Ethics and Religious Liberty Commission in Washington, D.C., and is therefore a very experienced, not only thinker, but practical thinker, somebody who wants to make the implications of the gospel plausible, real, pungent, effective in modern society. Uh, Andrew has academic interest in sexual ethics, human dignity, family stability, gender, anthropology, natural law, public theology, and church-state studies. In other words, he has interests in just about everything. Andrew, it's a great pleasure to have you on the show today. Carl, it's a real uh, privilege to be here with you, and I'm looking forward to our conversation. Thanks. And how are things at Southern Baptist Seminary? We're, we joke, we're recording just a week or so away from colleges and seminaries starting to go back for the spring semester. Are you planning to be teaching in person? Things look to be going back in person. We were really thankful um, and fortunate to have finished all of last semester in person. Like everyone else, we did a lot of the pretty stringent social media or social distancing uh, <laughs> protocols. And uh, we'll be doing the same thing come spring, and I'm um, I'm really looking forward to the the slate of classes I have. So we'll hopefully we can hold off and uh, get back into person and, and everything get back to normal as soon as possible. Excellent. Now you've only been at the Southern Baptist Seminary. I think you arrived just as lockdown was kicking in last year. It's an odd time to arrive. Are you encouraged? Are you enjoying your time there? Impressed with the quality of student? 
Yeah, I'm very happy to be here. And you're right. I actually had about two months of, of normalcy uh, in my tenure at Southern Seminary, and then the end of the world happened. And so we're still in the middle of the end of the world. So I'm still waiting for things to return to normal so that I can know what normal is for an extended period of time. But I love it. Um, to me, the ability to, to talk and explore and research and write about the issues that I love, and then to do that in the context of training pastors um, to go out into the churches, to build up the sheep for them to understand the moral implications of the gospel. I mean, honestly, I feel very blessed and fortunate to, to do something that I love and get, and get paid to do something that I love. Yeah, I feel much the same with my own my own job at Grove. And I have to say, when I heard you were going to uh, uh, Southern, I think we met at Princeton a couple of years ago when I was on the fellowship there and you were in town for the ERLC. Uh, when I heard you were going to Southern, I thought that's a great uh, coup for Southern Seminary because ethics is really one of the areas where Protestants are, we're playing a lot of catch up. Absolutely. And, and yet the most pressing issues of our day, that the biggest pressures on the Christian faith, I suspect, are, are no longer so much the epistemological ones that perhaps they were 100, 150 years ago. The biggest pressures we face now are, are in the, the ethical realm. And that's why, of course, your, your new book, or it's a book that's coming out in May this year, already available for order on Amazon, I believe, mm -hmm. uh, Liberty for All, published by Brazos Press. I think is going to be so helpful and significant. I had the, the pleasure, the privilege of, of reading a, a copy in advance. I don't always reread books that I've rapid read for commendations, but yours is one of those that when I get the hard copy, I'm going to spend some time working through it, underlining it at leisure because the topics it discusses are so important. And I want to pick up on a few of those today. And first one uh, I, I want to think about is, is the issue of natural law. For various historical reasons, natural law has not been highly thought of in Protestant circles. And yet over the last decade, uh, natural law has begun to re-emerge as a significant area of interest for Protestant theologians. David Van Drunen over at mm -hmm. uh, uh, Westminster, California, some of the Protestant guys involved at the Acton Institute uh, in uh, Michigan have been working in this area. And now you have emerged as, as a significant voice in the Protestant revival of natural law. First of all, Andrew, could you, could you explain for our listeners you know, in, in 30 seconds or less, mm. what is natural law and why is it so important to, uh, to think about at this particular juncture in time? Sure. So I mean, to, to quickly just I define it, I would say natural law is the idea that there is a divine moral order that's been inscribed from the eternal reason and eternal will of God that um, we as human agents with the ability to discern, recognize, learn through acts of reason, um, we, can, we can learn what this law is. And this law is to direct us and guide us into obtaining certain goods that lead to human flourishing. So the idea that someone should uh, we, I, I don't really need to, to spend a lot of time defending the principle that murder is a bad thing. We all kind of intuitively recognize that murder is bad. Okay, well then, if we all agree that murder is a bad idea, uh, what are the principles at stake in terms of how the mind grasps why murder is wrong and where that impulse comes from uh, that we need to talk about and explore? And I would say that 
that God has implanted that moral law on our hearts. It's a law written on the heart. Romans chapter two talks about that our reason through acts of cognition can understand as intelligible rules that we should follow that again, that guide us into human flourishing. I, I agree with you, Andrew, but I could imagine somebody from a, say an Augustinian or maybe from our perspective, more pointedly a, a kind of Calvinistic perspective sure. coming back and saying, absolutely agree. You know, Adam in the garden would have intuitively known that murder was wrong, but Adam's fallen and the fall doesn't just uh, affect the, the sort of the outward, the outward actions of Adam. It goes right to his core such mm-hmm. that the, uh, you know, even Paul, even Paul says, you know, the good that I would do that I do not do. Uh, mm-hmm. The evil that I would not do, that is the thing that I do. Right. Where do we take account of the biblical teaching, the biblical anthropology of sin relative to this, that mm-hmm. our minds are distorted, that, you know, I, I don't want to just walk out of the door and assume that my instincts are always going to guide me to the right, right. moral decision in any particular circumstance. How, how would you as a Protestant uh, right. address that particular issue? Well, I would want to begin by simply acknowledging, I mean, I, I would consider myself a reformed thinker in this vein as well. And so um, I, I want to, on the one hand, acknowledge the reality that the noetic effects of sin do exist. They exist down to the level of the will. They exist down to the level of our cognition of, of our ability to know all aspects of the natural law. But I would also say, on the other hand, that um, some principles of the natural law are more discernible than others. So you'll have some individuals who will make you know, very nuanced arguments, natural law arguments against contraception. Um, I think we can have those arguments. They require a, a little bit more elaboration. That is a harder discussion to have than the discussion of thou shalt not murder. It seems that all of us, even in a post-fall world, retain some degree of um, laws written on the heart. Or there are things, to quote Jay Budachewski, that we can't not know. Um, and and if, this is why when you look at various reformed thinkers, um, I, you know, in, in my orbit, I'm thinking of Carl F.H. Henry, one of my theological heroes, who is known as a critic of the natural law. Uh, he will even admit that there is an ineradicable light of nature inside the, the human person by virtue of being made in the image of God. So even a, a strong opponent of natural law uh, acknowledges there's some remnant morality existing. Well, I simply want to say at that point, Okay, if you're granting there's a remnant morality, we are then by default operating on natural law grounds. Let's then just work out the extrapolations from what the, the lineaments of that remnant morality are. And the other thing I would say too, to your question is, um, you know, I completely understand and sympathize with the argument that natural law may not be persuasive to a fallen world that simply rejects reason and as they reject nature. Um, But my question then is, if someone then rejects verbal plenary revelation, then what grounds do we have to discuss morality on in a fallen society? So there seems to be this um, inclination behind critics of natural law that if we just throw revelation and throw the Bible out 
enough, it'll it'll take root and that'll save Western civilization. Now, I I, I believe in inerrancy. I wish that were the case. Um, in in an ideal world, I perhaps wish we didn't have to talk about as natural law as much as we do. But when we live in a world that is fragmented and fractured by sin, and people reject the presuppositions of Scripture, if we're all going to live together and seek after some common notion of the common good, um, how do we do that as Christians and non-Christians? That was more than 30 seconds. <laughs> I was being facetious. Anyway. <laughs> okay, I'll give you five seconds to answer the next one. Um, how, how would you respond to this? One of, yeah, I'm deeply sympathetic to, to natural law, natural law arguments, but part of my thinking is there is a part of me that thinks, you know, we live in Nietzsche's world now, or, or we live in Freud's world now, where it, it, deeply embedded in, in the way people imagine the world to be is the idea that, that any kind of moral code only has limited application, uh, that the, the sort of herd mentality, taste, etc. There's a there's an intuition at the back of our minds that that, that our morality is really a matter of taste, mm-hmm. or it's a matter of of the dominant herd. Uh, and I think of a book like I, I, I hate to pick on this book because I've done it numerous times, and uh, and uh, the authors the authors are friends of mine, and it's a really good book. It's Ryan Anderson and Robbie George's book on marriage, What is Marriage? Right. So I think it's an excellent book. I think yeah. in some ways it's it's irrefutable as a defense of marriage. I have never met anybody who was persuaded to change their opinion as a result of the book. I'm not saying they're not out there. It's just that anecdotally I've never met them. What I have met is a lot of Christians who found that that book really consolidated their confidence that the biblical teaching about marriage, which the book by and large kind of treads very lightly on because it's, it's, mm-hmm. it's a book aimed at the public, not at, at the church so much, found that book very, very helpful. And mm-hmm. I wonder if natural law, if, if part of the strength of it, and this is what I found in the classroom at Grove, natural law is, is strong because it helps me to explain to precisely those students who accept biblical revelation why biblical revelation makes sense and doesn't just represent from a human perspective the arbitrary whim mm-hmm. of a despotic God. You know, there's a reason why homosexuality is wrong. And right. it's not just because God woke up one morning and decided, I'm going to cut off that avenue of pleasure. Actually, the very structure of creation right. speaks against it. Um, do you think that natural law is really important from a Christian pedagogical point of view? It's a wonderful question. And what I want to kind of preface my general comments on natural law by is the idea that I'm doing natural law from what I would call a, a Christian theistic natural law account, which meaning if, if someone rejects the metaphysics of Christianity, I completely understand why they would reject the metaphysics of natural law as well. But one of the things that I'm trying to do in the classroom in my defense of natural law is essentially twofold, is to argue that if you jettison Christian explanations around marriage and anthropology, you end up in illogical and irrational conclusions because the picture of reality uh, in scripture is, re- is, is, is a true portrait of reality itself. 
there's not Christian reality and then external reality. There is one reality. So the very best of the natural law tradition is going to show how um, the word of God and the and the book of nature or general revelation and special revelation essentially overlap and align. And, I, and I'm going to also acknowledge up front, as one of my mentors says, um, there is grace in the garden. So all of creation in my accounting is of grace because the, the, the mere reason we have conscience, the, the idea that there are structures of creation, that's a reality of divine reason or eternal reason that has ordered the world and ordered the universe in the way that it has. But so there's, there's, you know, exposing the illogical fruits of jettisoning natural law on the one hand, but there's also, I, I think, a more formative and discipleship uh, oriented aspect of the natural law, which is why I spend actually more of my time discussing in class. Cause I find, I find natural law is actually less valuable as an apologetic tool and more valuable as a discipleship tool. So I've written a book on transgenderism. And one of the things I try to talk in my class about is when we hear or we read in scripture that God made male and female for one another and to be fruitful and multiply. Well, that's a very brief summary of what I think is an accurate description of our biological selves. So what we see in scripture is that to be male and female is to have reproductive uh, ability tied to your maleness and femaleness. And so again, Genesis one and two doesn't have an elaborate natural law theory of male and female. What it does is it gives us kind of the bare lineaments that attached to this understanding of male and female is its ability to engage in procreative acts. Well then how we understand what a male or female is biologically, and this is what science would say, is it's beings ordered towards certain acts of reproduction. So all of a sudden, uh, what I've done for my students is to show them that biological science, which is general revelation and special revelation are overlapping. And moreover, when we jettison, um, you know, basic truths of our complementarity, um, you know, all of the natural lawyers were told for for years that all of their arguments are slippery slopes. Well, all of those slippery slope arguments have in most sense come true. So it turns out to me that the slope truly was slippery because once you jettison marriage as the complementary union of male and female, you open up marriage to any number of pliable definitions that's no longer rooted in a conjugal reality. Building off that, Andrew, would you therefore say that, you know, one of the things one must not lose sight of with natural law is teleology, because of course there is there is a, there is a natural law of rights, if you like, that I have certain rights naturally, and there's a natural law of of telos, of of purpose. Would you say there's a very important distinction to be drawn there that when we're thinking natural law, we need to realise there are, there are a variety of natural laws out there in some sense, and 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 Christians need to be very careful about how we construct it. So I would say one of the reasons that I am most drawn to natural law ethics and natural law theory is for its teleology. Um, when you look at Genesis chapter one and two, and I'm, I'm drawn from the insights of Matthew Levering here, who's a Catholic theologian, who says, you cannot understand Genesis chapter one and two apart from a teleological 
order. And so we as Christians have a vested stake in structure and design and order, which is another way of saying law. Law is a standard or measurement of action that we can form our beliefs and actions to in order to bring about these common goods. And as you mentioned in an earlier comment, um, you know, I sense, you know, this is kind of uh, what McIntyre says, we are living in an essentially emotivistic age. It's Nietzschean, um, where there's essentially nihilism, but there, it's also emotivism. Um, emotivism essentially denies teleology. So the idea of emotivism is you do you, live your truth. Well, live your truth uh, denies the existence of the order of things. And in my view, uh, you cannot live a sustainable, flourishing life apart from obtaining or from, from discerning what those what that order is, and then living in alignment with that order. Yeah, it's a very good point. Uh, I'm glad as well that you mentioned Matt Levering there. He's We need to get him on the show. I, He's wonderful. How does he know so much? I mean, the human head is only, you know, eight inches by eight inches or something, yet he seems to have entire libraries. And I think he he's got – I visited him once. I think he has six children. Uh, loves chaos and noise in his household, sits and writes his books on a table with all his kids running around. Absolutely. He's remarkable. He's a remarkable human being and a great gift because everywhere he writes, uh, he's made very helpful contributions. Moving to a sort of more practical uh, context now, uh, Andrew, uh, freedom of speech, freedom of religion. We're living at a time in the West where it seems to have happened so suddenly these things that were for the longest time regarded as necessary preconditions of a virtuous virtuous society, necessary preconditions of a flourishing society, suddenly they've come to be regarded as a problem. Why do you think that's come about and how would you respond given these are questions that you must be wrestling with in class every day with students who are going to fa- go out and find that freedom of religion is is the big issue of their generation? Well, I think, uh, you know, it's explainable on the one hand because of the, the growth of non-religious citizens. I mean, one of the highest uh, percentages of, of people in the population growing is this population called the nuns which are reporting essentially no religious affiliation, which means that the idea of being religious or having actions motivated from the grounds of religion are growing more unfamiliar and more, I would say, almost eccentric. Uh, You know, you'll often hear in these conversations, I'll I'll get asked, um, well, why is religion a civil right if it's something that you can effectively choose to believe or choose not to believe. Well, that misunderstands what I think religion is and what purpose it serves in our uh, in our lives. R- religion is not something that I haphazardly choose to live in accordance with day in and day out. The very best of religion is it's a confrontation with ultimate reality. And then when you're confronted with ultimate reality, there's no way in which you could live um, apart from what you believe to be true truth or ultimate truth. So you and I are, are 
sinners. At least I know I am. I'm not, I'm not sure about you. Oh, I am, Andrew. Uh, but, I guarantee you. <laughs> but, but every day we sin, we, that requires repentance. Um, but we're not necessarily choosing to believe in Christ. We have been confronted with the, tr- the, the, the truth of who Christ is. And for us, that has required a, uh, a, a total giving of the self to that reality, knowing that we're still going to get that wrong from day to day. But I, I can't conceive of my life apart from my faith in Christ. It defines my relationships with my friends, my family, um, with literally everything. So we need to almost have a, a, a bigger conversation about kind of the uh, architectonic nature of what religion serves in general for human beings. Uh, this is why at the beginning of our of our nation, um, I don't believe all of our founders were born again Christians. I believe most of them were mo- most likely deists, uh, but they understood that religion played a pivotal role in grounding rights and securing rights and forming uh, a seedbed for morality. Uh, and a lot of thinkers from Washington to de Tocqueville have made the argument that um, you cannot have governing, sustainable, habitable societies with a sense of the common good without a robust religiosity at the core. And one of the reasons we're having this contracted uh, ideological civil war in America that we call the the culture wars is because we have deeply divergent understandings of what ultimate reality is and what ultimate reality does to impact our understandings of what is true, good, and beautiful. So uh, I, I, as we're simultaneously talking about the need to have free expression, uh, I want us to be talking more about the role of religion in society as well, which I should add, my, my book is actually not just about religious liberty. It's much more broadly a, a public theology of how eternal authority relates to temporal authority as well. Yeah, it's a very good point. I think one of the things that worries me about the religious right, so to speak, at the moment, and I, I, I'm not a basher of the religious right here at all, but it seems they don't understand that you know, religious freedom has never been an unqualified right. You know, Nobody ever had the right, right. to sacrifice their daughter to Molech in the American uh, right. experiment. So it's never been unqualified. So what you have to constantly do is make that case that, that religion serves the broader broader public good. Uh, and I, I fear that that case is not being made well at the moment, and, or those that are trying to make it are getting so hammered by both sides, it's becoming very difficult for them to make that case. Would you? What, what are your thoughts on that, Andrew? I, I think that's, that's well said. I mean, I think this comes back to, you, you mentioned free speech in an earlier question. Um, free speech is not absolute, even in America, that has its dramatically expansive First Amendment policies. Uh, We're recording this a few days after President Trump has been banned from Twitter. Um, He wasn't banned haphazardly. He was banned under the pretense of incitement. And incitement for anyone who is at all familiar with First Amendment jurisprudence, and I'm not even a lawyer, understands that incitement uh, is not something that you can engage in speech around to, to cause violence to bring about acts of, 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 of violence perpetrating against each other. But all this is to say that every understanding of a human right is, is going to be tempered uh, by 
some understanding of how that right contributes to the common good. No right is absolute. Uh, you, you mentioned you cannot engage in animal sacrifice or Moloch worship, uh, human, human sacrifice, and, and that be protected under the First Amendment. And that's absolutely correct. Why do we, why do we say that? Well, because there's a, there's a public health interest at stake here. We then have legislatures, not kings, uh, not judges. We have legislatures that come back uh, after the fact, realizing that there are legitimate interests that the public has at times in restraining either speech or religion and through acts of deliberation and judgment, creating the best possible laws that allows for a maximal account of both religious liberty and freedom of speech. So I think to your point, we do need to have more forthrightness when we talk about the good of religious liberty to also go ahead and volunteer the information that we don't mean absolutize religious liberty no matter the case. Um, I think if we were to be more forthcoming about that, that could actually help de-escalate some of the culture war rhetoric around this whole conversation, which is one of the reasons religious liberty has become sullied is it's now seen as a, a right left thing rather than as, a, as a, an edifice for liberal democracy at large. Yeah, one could also add to that the fact that the constitution places limits on the power of the federal government. Uh, it's not you know, much as we might find it obnoxious that Amazon won't stock a particular book, you know, unless Amazon is taking huge government subsidies, you know, the First Amendment doesn't apply any more than than it applies to, you know, a, a confessional institution uh, enforcing right. its confession. Although, of course, there's an interesting debate about institutions that take government money for student loans, to what extent uh, are they on what could be precarious ground? But that's uh, a question for another day. I'm very glad to be teaching at Grove City College that doesn't take government money at this point. Uh, We at least have that in in our favour. So, well, it's been great pleasure talking to you, Andrew. It's always great to see you on a personal level anyway, but thank you for giving such clear and articulate answers to the question of natural law, and then latterly on, on issues of religious freedom, things that I think will be pedagogically and politically very, very significant matters for the rising generation of Christians, particularly for the rising generations of Christians in public life and in pastoral ministry. Want to uh, press on our, re- uh, on our listeners the uh, the new book that Andrew has coming out in May again. Uh, it's from Brazos. It's entitled Liberty for All. It's not out until May, but you can already push Andrew up the Amazon rankings by going and ordering a copy. And they have that wonderful policy, I think, that if you order it now and the price comes down before they publish it, you still get it at the cheaper price. So go and boost Andrew's uh, ratings now. Let's get uh, let's get his publisher to go back and, and do another printing, even even before the first one is launched. Uh, in the meantime, all that remains for me is to say uh, thank you for listening. Please visit our website, mortificationofspin.org, if you feel led uh, by the Spirit or by conviction from natural law that you should not be listening to a free podcast but should be making some contribution to it. Uh, please make a contribution to keeping 
us on air. Other than that, all that remains for me is to say thanks very much for listening. I'm sure that the absence of Todd has led to a massive increase in quality. Please email the Alliance and let them know that that is the case and hope to be with you all next week. Thanks for listening to Mortification of Spin, a podcast of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals. For more on topics like this, visit mortificationofspin.org, where you can find other articles by Carl and Todd, browse the archive of past episodes, and make a donation. We'll talk to you next time on Mortification of Spin. I was actually on Twitter, but not under my own name, under a pseudonym. Oh, were you? For a brief period of about three weeks. And somebody rumbled it was me. And suddenly I was getting all this hate mail. You know, if people want to hate me, that's fine. But I'm not going to give them a forum to hate me. They're going to come up with their own forum. Well, and I spell things the English way. So I don't even comment on blogs anonymously because I might spell (laughs) something using the English spelling. And that's me done. So, uh, hey, nice jacket on the profile picture, by the way. The, uh, the oh, blue well, thank and the you. red tie that. goes together well. Yeah. You do have that uh, <laughs> Washington uh, NGO lobby group sort of look to you. So, Hello, I'm Jonathan Master, president of Greenville Presbyterian Theological Seminary. When I look back at what first drew me to the Alliance, it was Dr. Boyce speaking about the great need for reformation and a return to historic Reformed confessions, biblical preaching, and thoughtful worship. Given the changes in our culture since then, that need is even greater today. The church today needs bold proclamation of sound doctrine, clear teaching of the Bible, and worship that is God-honoring and full of reverence and joy. At Greenville Seminary, we aim to meet this need by equipping men for pastoral ministry, men who are courageously committed to the truth, who are Christ-like in their character, committed to prayer, and called to be ministers of God's Word in local churches. If you're interested in learning more about Greenville Seminary, either as a prospective student or as an interested friend, visit us at gpts.edu. Greenville Seminary, equipping preachers, pastors, and churchmen for Christ's kingdom among the nations.